Okay, our first guest today is going to be uh, William Ramsey. He's the author of Abomination, Deception, and Devil Worship in the West Memphis Three case. Uh, ever since I started doing this show some six, seven years ago, uh, whenever I would go on a news station or something like that, the first show we would always do would be at the, about the West Memphis Three. Uh, William Ramsey, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me, Ed. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, why don't you tell the audience, who, who is William Ramsey? Well, I was in a former life an attorney. I still am a member of the state bar. And uh, I did just start writing books on subjects I thought were important and were not being covered by anybody in the corporate media or the alternative media. So my first book was about Aleister Crowley. And my second book, which was supposed to be my second book, was about Aleister Crowley's influence upon the 20th century. And while I was researching that, I came across a clip of this convicted criminal by the name of Damien Eccles talking about Aleister Crowley. And that really piqued my interest into the West Memphis Three. So that's how kind of I got started on this subject. And I've done a couple documentaries. I did a recent documentary titled um, The Smiley Face Killers Who Is Abducting, Torturing, and Murdering College-Age Men in the U.S. and U.K. That was 2017. I did a couple other kind of very micro-produced films, which are Prophet of Evil and also Occult Hollywood. So uh, just kind of kind of uh, just done a lot of different stuff as a creative outlet, but uh, never really thought I'd be writing a book. But my book title about the West Memphis Three is... Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders. Okay. And um, you got a, a radio show, too, a podcast? Yeah, I just started really podcasting much more vigorously within the last, you know, six months. So uh, my podcast is available, William Ramsey Investigates. Okay, excellent. So what, why don't you tell us now, what is the story of the West Memphis Three? Well, it's more of a saga. I would say a saga than a story. It really started back in 1993. Uh, the disappearance of three young boys in the city of West Memphis that is located over the Mississippi from Memphis, Tennessee. It's kind of a middle middle to lower middle class city, but three young boys, uh, the names of Byers, Moore, and Branch, uh, Steve Steve Byers, they came out and they came home. Uh, there's an ex and really an oddly wide uh, coverage uh, of these murders, uh, and um, it, in about a month, June 3rd of 1993, uh, three people were arrested. Jesse Miss Kelly, Jason Baldwin, and Damian Eccles. They were arrested for the murders, and uh, they ended up being tried tried separately. Okay. Two different uh, trials in 1994, and Miss Kelly and Baldwin and were sentenced to life in prison, and Damian Eccles was sentenced to the death penalty. And that's really where it started, and there were books about it, but there were the, the real uh, kind of what made it much more famous was the involvement of an HBO uh, documentary team by the name of Berlinger and Sanofsky, who did a movie called Paradise Lost. There ended up being three movies, but the first one I think was published in 1996 and that really brought this case to the public's attention and it was through the the subsequent second and third films that people started to to think that they were actually innocent something different than what the courts found as far as their culpability for the crime and there was there was a ton of evidence they really what condemned them in the courts was uh well well, let me stop you there before we get too far because um uh, this the, the first film, Paradise Lost, that's what uh, spurned or was gave birth 
to the, the West, uh, free the West Memphis three.org and the, the free the three. And it became this big uh, uh, hoopla of uh, celebrities and stuff and, and grassroots uh, bloggers and uh, message board people uh, starting this campaign to, to bring awareness, raise money, like raise a lot of money and right. bring awareness to the, to the West Memphis three. But this was back in 1994. And, and you describe this HBO documentary, but that's before we knew about reality TV. Uh, and and how reality TV today has a lot less respect than we had respect for documentary films uh, back in those days. Was there any problems with the, the facts in that documentary film? Well, yeah, there was a lot of problems. One of them was the fact that it was kind of fact-free. They omitted many facts that were involved in the case. So it gave a distorted view, and I think you're absolutely right. Just the notion of a documentary itself, I think the public would think that somebody was passing through um, information that actually happened and I think that that's the, really the distortion of the case was due to in my opinion due to the involvement of the people who made these Paradise Lost documentaries that they actually were innocent so um, they were guilty at law uh, found guilty but there was you know the cases against them there weren't any wasn't any DNA so the people, you know, as long as there's no DNA that in the public mind, according to the CSI effect, which means that there's always DNA in a case, um, they are not guilty because they weren't found. However, people saw them. There was a family who saw them at the scene of the crime. And they actually had Jesse Miss Kelly uh, on tape admitting or uh, stating that he was involved in the crime. So, um, and there's also a young girl at a softball field who heard Damien Eccles stating that he committed the crime he was going to kill two more people so those were all heard in court and he was actually interviewed and cross-examined in court and uh, the juries themselves found enough information and enough evidence there for them to return a guilty verdict but yeah like you said the the in my opinion those document documentaries were actually very deceptive because they were much more reality TV than actual documents of what happened in that case. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because today people are a little bit more savvy. They're more savvy about confessions, too. And confessions play a big part in this case, right? Absolutely. Uh, for instance, uh, the, in the documentary, they claim that uh, this young boy who confesses, poor little boy, uh, Mescali, Jesse Mescali, uh, was uh, had a, a low IQ and he was interrogated for 12 hours. Uh, and what can you tell us about the confessions in this case? Well, that, that 12 hours is a myth. There's no way he would have been... Uh, uh, he, I think he showed up at the police station with the, the approval of his father. And he was under 18 at the time. But his father approved um, him going to the police station. But I think that the full uh, confession involved him for less than five hours or something like that. And you, you have it on tape. It's pretty clear that he's not being abused or tortured or coerced uh he, you know he didn't he wasn't obviously the brightest uh bulb but um i think that that was an important aspect of his conviction and even after he got convicted in 1994 then he really started telling the story and confessed over and over and recorded confessions post-conviction so there's these elements and these are all in the court records that nobody really wants to talk about they're known as the against the advice of attorney confession hand on a Bible confession, so he's, and he also uh, confessed to the police who drove him from the court to the jail. So Jesse Miss Kelly, post-conviction, could not keep his mouth shut. He just kept saying, we did it. He kept 
having stating things within the, that were confirmed in the in the record and so right. uh, there was a he said that there was a whiskey bottle which they found the remnants of a whiskey bottle they were supposedly drinking at the time that the murders took place so there was some some corroboration in his in one of his confessions with what they found in the factual records or I mean found at the site or near the crime so um yeah so the, the Jesse Miss Kelly confessed like six or six times at least one of the confessions was with his lawyer present with his hand on the Bible. Correct. So the lawyer is actually pleading with him, don't confess. It's right. against my uh, advice to confess. He says, I want something done about it. So, yeah, so it's uh, it's pretty apparent that he uh, saw himself as somebody involved. And, and actually, there was, uh, in the court records, there was something about uh, somebody who was in jail with Jason Baldwin. He said he told, Jason told this other inmate that he was involved in it so um but but jesse for a second you know if, if you know, as an attorney if you have a client who with your you know an attorney present with his hand on the bible making a confession that's pretty good stuff right well i think that he can go back into court i don't think that he would be able to profess innocence in another court of law if he was ever put back in a court of law so uh, I would say that that would be pretty convincing evidence of his his involvement in in this case. And I mean, the, the saga itself went on for so long. In 2011, they actually all signed on paperwork that said there was enough evidence to com commit convict them for first degree murder when they signed their guilty pleas and got out uh, in August of 2011. So they had some of the best, like you were talking about, all the money raised. People think that there was somewhere between 10 to $20 million raised. They got the best attorneys, and uh, they were actually due for an evidentiary hearing, supposedly yeah. involving uh, information that was going to exonerate them, but instead they decided to plea out using an offer plea, which allows them to profess innocence publicly, but uh, as far as the, the court is concerned, it's a guilty plea. That was August 2011. So now a lot is made of the motives. Uh, for these murders, um, that uh, the young men were involved in, in the occult and an occult sacrifice. But then the, the film, Paradise Lost, tries to portray it, portray it uh, as these were just young kids who were listening to heavy metal music and wore black T-shirts, and so that the people in the town just uh, accused them of, of witchcraft. It was like a witch hunt, uh, Salem witch hunt trials, people compare it to. Uh, now, you've done a lot of uh, work with investigating Crowley, researching Crowley, and, and different things like that, and I, I consider you to be somewhat an expert in, in that area. Uh, what is your conclusion when you see uh, these men and their interest in the occult and, and witchcraft and black magic and, and the such? Well, like I had said earlier, my interest really started when they were asking about Aleister Crowley. This was actually from the first Paradise Lost. They were asking Eccles about Crowley. And they had a copy of Magic and Theory and Practice on the desk. I think the prosecutor's name was Price, and he was asking him about it. And Damien Eccles on the stand said he didn't, he did, wasn't knowledgeable about the occult. He knew everything about it, and this was when he was 18. So I was astonished at uh, how much knowledge and how much information about the occult was in the case files. I, you know, the there were all kinds of drawings of uh, ritual sacrifice involving like a baby with a rattle in this kind of darkened area with a pentagram. And Damien Eccles had a downward-facing pentagram tattoo on his chest that nobody seemed to want to talk about, but was talked about in court. So there was things prior, and there was uh, meetings that were 
There were other people who gave statements to police about meetings that took place at an old cotton gin that people called Stonehenge. And, you know, so I was actually very shocked. And then uh, during, he, while he was in jail, he kept, you know, there was uh, even more evidence that showed that he wasn't merely some kind of dabbler. And this wasn't some kind of instance of satanic panic, some kind of irrational, phobic outrage. But the fact that he was a member of Crowley's OTO chapter in Arkansas, not only was he a member, but he had so many books that they named the the library of that chapter of the OTO after him. So, and this is writing in their in their uh, you know OTO documents. It's not somewhere else. So. Um, he actually had some kind of minister from the OTO come and talk to him while he was in jail. So uh, he was no dabbler at that time. I mean, he, he kind of I mean, says he, he has an interest in all kinds of mysticism and things like that, but it fits right into the Crowley model. He was very interested in Eastern mysticism, um, if not, not only interested, but integrated Eastern mystical ideas into his religion. So, uh, and it is pretty fascinating after his release, Damien Eccles flat out stated that he was not only he was prosecuted for his love of the knowledge of Crowley so this was a statement that he made in a magazine article and so I you know I kept watching this and and some of the people who helped him get released who are well-known celebrities also have an interest in the occult in the occult so I found that also to be very curious so for me um, there's definitely a very strong yeah. current of occultism, Satanism, and, and the tattoos of Damien Eccles are like a pat, like a, a pattern or a mural of all kinds of occult symbolism that has deeper and darker meaning. So it's it's pretty remarkable that he can anybody could even claim even that there's some kind of dabbling, uh, superficial element of occultism in these cases when that's not the case, in my opinion. It's fairly he's fairly open about it now. It's claiming that magic is what released him from prison. Black yeah. magic. Yeah, well, he actually said that. I mean, it's interesting because most people who get out of prison, usually they claim they have the law, the facts, the evidence on the sign, but he didn't say that. He said magic, magic, magic. So magic with a K, just like Crowley would spell it. So it's very interesting, uh, very interesting statements, much like the Jesse, Miss Kelly post-conviction confessions. If these guys ever went back into court, they have a lot of things people would uh, want to be entered into evidence. Before the uh, these murders that they were convicted of, and then they later on uh, pled guilty to, uh, was supposed to say pleaded guilty. Sorry, <laughs> as um, pled or pleaded is successful. Yeah. Pled oh, guilty. really? Okay. Did he ever um, uh, describe an intent, uh, a desire of an intent to sacrifice a child? Well, there was. The he did. He had a girlfriend at the time, and there was talk among them in the court documents that. They were going to have a child and sacrifice it. So there were talk. There was weird talk about that. Damien Eccles was. Uh, there were recordings of fights that he stomped on an old Great Dane. That's in the court records. And these guys were actually on probation. Uh, Damien Eccles himself, they paint him as just some kind of hapless guy wearing a heavy metal T-shirt, but he's on probation for kind of uh, being in a trailer with his girlfriend and uh they made he made some very ferocious threats towards the police and he had been in three mental institutions prior just prior to the murder so uh he he had a i mean they actually when when once he got convicted of 
the murders, they on the appeal on the appeals process, oh. they tried to make the claim that he wasn't well mentally, and they compiled 500 pages of documents. It's called Exhibit 500 because it's huge, and it goes into this detailed this history deep, of Damien Eccles that is recorded not only by people in Arkansas, but when he when he was in Oregon for a short period of time, he went into a mental institution there as well. So all of these documents were created not by the prosecutor, but by his defense team at the time to uh, make the argument in front of the court that he was uh, he was unfit and unwell. And there's actually testimony. There was actually a doctor whose name I can't remember at the time, but he did an analysis of Damien Eccles. And it's also in the court records where, you know, he's just not well. He just didn't understand the, the thing. He was in contact with entities, just all kinds of really strange stuff. And blood drinking. Blood drinking, blood licking. There was a sequence where he said, I'm drinking uh, Kool-Aid packets to change his body. So he's undergoing some kind of tr transformation by his own statements. I mean, just incredible stuff. He had a spirit inside that made him smarter, that he was a vampire. He also uh, had a, his, um, he applied for uh, disability. His mother was on disability. And his disability application was incredible because included things like i'm a sociopath he, he had reference to levey and satanism i think i mean just all in his handwriting so um there's tons of information that's out there that nobody seems to want to to want to reference so when people omit these facts from the case records you got to kind of you got to ask some good questions see wonder why that is you described the animal abuse that he attacking a stomping on a great dane until the, the guts spurt out what about other animal skulls and uh, objects in his home? Well, that's a great point. They found that he had this, and his mother knew about it, that he had a habit of finding animal skulls and bleaching them and saving them. And it's actually included in, I think, some of his more recent artwork. Not recent, but when he was released from prison then. By his own admission, that's what he'd like to do. So, um, yeah, there's very, so he had some pretty strange habits, definitely. And some of his art is questionable value as well. So... Yeah, there's a whole yeah, bunch yeah, of I evidence. Mean, that, yeah. We should free this guy. This is the kind of guy we want free. Well, that <laughs> we yeah, begs the question. Why does somebody great. want him free? Right. This is amazing. Well, they watched a TV show, a reality TV show called Paradise Lost, and, and they were fed a bunch of garbage, and they thought it would be okay to free this guy and put him out on the street. In fact, passionately fight for his freedom. Well, it's, now, what a, yeah, it's just crazy because this is like this new phenomenon called innocence fraud, and the West Memphis Three were probably the first. Well, there are actually probably other cases where people of questionable merit. I cl include them in my book. Uh, there was a guy, Unterweger, in, in Austria who was killing prostitutes. And he had all of these celebrities support him. He got out and started killing prostitutes again. And there was another guy by the name of Jack Abbott. So yeah. these, there's been these cause celeb involvement where these untrained, uh, sympathetic celebrities spend time and money getting these people out. And they... The, in the complete contradiction towards what was found through the police and, and prosecutorial uh, agencies. Incredible. Yeah, the amount of money raised in this case, uh, quote-unquote, to raise awareness or defense funds or commissary funds is uh, astronomical just from the public. Uh, but then you mentioned uh, also as well famous people like uh, Peter. Who was that guy, Peter? Peter Jackson, who did the uh, the uh, – Tolkien movies, the yeah, the Hobbit yeah. movies, so um, he was involved, Johnny Depp was involved, uh, the girl from the Dixie Chicks was involved, Natalie, 
Watts, Henry Rollins. Um, so all these people are out there talking about the innocents and how sympathetic they are. And they were all involved. The guy from uh, Pearl Jam, the singer from Pearl Jam. Who, uh, Eddie. Yeah, Eddie Vedder, who Damien Eccles dedicated his most recent book to. So, and, and William, it's not like any of the things we're talking about here, like Exhibit 500, the prior animal abuse, uh, the occult uh, uh, and, you know, activity, the blood drinking. This isn't a secret. This is all that's been discussed ad nauseum since 1994. I, mean, I think so. I think really yeah. once the, that Exhibit 500 came out, uh, I think that that, you know, this is all you know, known. And, you know, it's pretty crazy because you, it's not that hard to access the files that are at this Callahan AK. When I... When I started to research this case, my first question is, okay, where are the court files? I typed in West Memphis Three court files and Callahan's came up, and there they are. It's not supposedly a fully complete copy, but it's all all of the major aspects of the case, their trials and, and his appeals are all there. And it's very important, too, because his case was appealed to the Arkansas Supreme Court, which uh, verified and affirmed the lower courts, and then his attorneys applied for a writ of certiorari to the American U.S. Supreme Court, highest court in the land, and it was denied certiorari. So his appellate process was done properly, and there were no allegations of insufficiency of counsel or anything that are standard appellate claims. So the, the, this case has gone through with proper uh, you know, legal system checks and balances still, and still they still got out. So... Um, really what happened is, is in 2011, they had all this pressure. They had the best attorneys. They had this supposed new evidence, which was never really brought into court. And there was a new prosecutor who blinked and accepted this Alford plea. So, um, it's a shame. Um, what about, uh, Damien Eccles? He was an adult male. He was 18 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. Old enough to join the Marines, old enough to go into combat. You can go into combat at 18 years old if you're, if you're a Marine. Or in the army. Uh, now, how old were his girlfriends and and the girls he was talking to? Well, that's a good question. I I don't remember what the girlfriend at the time he was. Uh, his girlfriend, her name was Dominique. I don't remember her age, but she was pregnant. So he is now he was a father during the trial, and um, she has an interesting background too. She comes from like a. I think that she said something, or, or her cousin had a vampire uh, book. You probably know more about that, but like they made a quote like, "Oh, mom drinks blood, sister drinks blood, I drink blood." Yeah, yeah. yeah her her cousin T.J. Tier. By the way, who she had just come back from visiting uh, in California. Her cousin T.J. Tier had a magazine, a, va a vampire magazine, and was the spokesperson, the U.S. spokesperson for the vampire movement in Transylvania. <laughs> and, and you're right. She said, of course I drink blood. My mother drinks blood. My whole family drinks blood. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> okay? yeah, I mean, it's incredible. But, but again, the defenders say, well, that's made up because it was only told to one cop and the cop wrote it. Down. You know, it's just fascinating. Right. Well, Dominique Tears, there's actually a picture of her making this kind of a cult hand signal where she, really? the, yeah, the arm is, is at right. a 90 degree over her chest. You see Crowley do it. She's wearing a cross at the same time. So these guys were very had some very deep knowledge. It was pretty incredible when I looked through all that stuff about how how much they knew. And they, you know, the, there was uh, the police when they were re, uh, investigating the case. There were all kinds of names that popped up. They were all, they thought that they they had a list of members who were in kind of cult behavior 
And some of these guys were, went on to be, who were named in the original court docs, went on to become outspoken members of polyamory society. Um, their names I can't remember at this time, but it was a very, it's a very strange, uh, strange situation. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Exhibit 500 also describes uh, Damien's behavior, stalking young girls at the roller rink, eight-year-old girls. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff about, there was one where he was hiding in the bushes taking pictures of two girls uh, headed off to church in the morning. And the father came and made a statement to police. That never made it into court, but it's in the um, it's in the court documents. Oh, and uh, now back to these uh, these films, the Paradise Lost series. Um, the second one, the, the second installment, or the part two, you might call it, right. uh, that right. focused uh, the attention on an alternative suspect. What can you tell us about right. that? So that was Mark Byers. So Mark, there were. Most of the parents were actually step parents. So Byers was the step parent of the Byers boy, and then Terry Hobbs is the step parent of Stevie Branch. He basically raised him because uh, he started raising him from when he was a year and a half old. But uh, Mark Byers was kind of, was, kind of, was kind of this guy who was blamed for the case. And it's an interesting if people want to see the kind of uh, non-consistent behavior by these guys. There was a pic. There's a video in that second one where Damien Eccles states, I'm 100% convinced that John Mark Byers did it. So these guys are really throwing the onus of the crimes on Byers. And I think Baldwin does the same thing. And uh, by the by the time of the third one, now it's it's Terry Hobbs. So they've switched their potential uh, other, uh, other murderer. But um, those are really, I would say, really the second and the third really did change, were very crucial in changing the public opinion um, away from the ones found guilty in court. Yeah, everyone was convinced by the second film that it had to be uh, John Mark Byers. He had to be the one because of his suspicious behavior and different things like that and his bizarre uh, exploits and things. We've talked to people who know Byers personally. And uh, the, the filmmakers were giving him alcohol and marijuana and stuff like that before he would he would go uh, on film and money uh, too. So they were encouraging this lurid behavior to get good tape. So it's uh, you know it's pretty it's not uh, some kind of objective you know analytical documentary. It's very it's it's really strange how they put they put uh, how how Berlinger and uh, Sanofsky, who's passed away, put these documentaries together. It's very odd. Yes, yeah, so everyone was convinced for years it was buyers, but now if you if you listen to people and, and they don't even know the names, the different names, they'll say it's the stepfather, but they're thinking of Terry Hobbs. Now I have a, a recording I did with Terry Hobbs, an interview that, that we're going to be playing later on in the show. Uh, I've known Terry Hobbs for years. Now, um, give us an idea. How did it change from buyers to Hobbs? So I think really that change started taking place when the money was really raised. There were significant amounts of money, and they started doing. A, a re-look at the DNA that was involved or still at the police force and they found a hair that was similar to Terry Hobbs therefore they there was a very it was very easy it seemed me thinks or I think that they transferred this hair to Terry Hobbs was 100% there and involved and so there were all these rumors about Terry Hobbs and his friend and two other people with really out any evidence none of the police ever thought this this was never an issue 15 years after, you know, for the 15 years after the murders, Terry Hobbs went to all the trials 
endured all of this stuff. And so now he was pretty much the the guilty stepfather. Nobody saw him dirty or muddy at the scene or anything like that at the night of the crime. Although they saw uh, Damien Eccles either with Dominique Tear or Jason Baldwin near the scene of the crime muddy. But um, so now Terry Hobbs is really kind of the guilty mm-hmm. party. And he, he uh, sued Natalie Maines for defamation. He had all these armchair sleuths looking around trying to figure it out. And that kind of behavior is still happening to this day. Um, but yeah, so Terry Hobbs has really endured the worst for the last 10 years. He just recently wrote a book called Box Full of Nightmares, detailing his, this kind of, uh, it's really been a quarter century for him, a quarter century nightmare. So, uh, it's really, uh, it's really a shame. And, and people have just kept this, you know, Terry Hobbs. And then there was a, another documentary that involved, uh, Amy Berg called West of Memphis that had the quote, Hobbs family secret, unquote, which is like quadruple hearsay. So it was like one guy heard one guy heard another guy, and it wouldn't even be laughed out of court. But it seems to have some type of uh, currency in the court of public opinion. But uh, yeah, so it just is a barrage of. There's a lot of deception, and which is why I titled my book "Deception." There's a lot of uh, falsities bandied about around this case. And there was another film came out, I believe it was with Reese Witherspoon. Is that the one? Correct. So it was Reese Witherspoon. Right. That was called, that was Devil's Knot based upon Leverett's book, Devil's Knot, which is also, in my opinion, a very mm-hmm. questionable veracity and facts. And uh, that was the other guy. It was, uh, was He uh, played Ron Lax, who was the PI, who was uh, working with the defense. But uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he's a British actor. But that was also was also a, a pretty a shameful shameful episode in this whole saga. So that didn't really That's come it. to any conclusions or bring light to anything, in my opinion. Yeah, the movie was based on a book by Marl Levitt. And uh, originally, uh, well, let's start with this. Uh, didn't you and I have a conversation with a, a guy who owned a storage locker and right. bought that material for storage locker his name was robert horn and out of arkansas and he was a person like a guy who's a storage locker purchaser and he purchased one locker and found out that the person who owned it was damien eccles and then after he bought that he went through the stuff somebody else who had bought another of damien eccles lockers offered to sell it to him so he had actual two uh storage lockers that um, I had all of this stuff from Damien Eccles, and it was just a treasure trove of information. It showed, again, how much occult material Damien Eccles either accumulated by himself or people sent him books. And uh, to, uh, there were all kinds of pictures, uh, inappropriate pictures that Rob Horn had of Damien Eccles and his wife and all kinds of writings and uh, Damien Eccles' pornographic writings. And also something in there where he said, I am the devil. I'm not a devil. I am the devil. He's writing that in his own very distinctive handwriting. But uh, very damning stuff that uh, that was in those storage lockers where they just, I guess, forgot to pay for for them. And and he talks, it describes in somebody's writing hog time. Right. That's a good point. So there was like a BDSM theme to some of this stuff. There was also another, um, some information that came to me through the grapevine of, there was a thing he, like, yeah, it was just like all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, he he was saying he wanted to hogtie his wife, and and the significance to that is that the children were hogtied with the with shoelaces. Right. Oh, so, the, so the, this other one was thing that came through me through the grapevine was him 
trying to pick up on a woman. I think that he was saying he wanted to tie her up as well. Right. Now, I brought that up because we were talking about Devil's Knot. And it turns out that one of the documents, one of the books that we found in that storage locker was a manuscript for the book, a pre-publication manuscript of the book written by Mara Levitt, sent to Damien Eccles for his approval and corrections. Right. I mean, it's incredible. So you're, you're thinking, like, where, how objective is this analysis? And I was told that there, uh, Rob Horn had a receipt from the attorney's that stated that they looked through that book to see if there was anything damning. So they did some kind of like check on the book and were charging um, the Eccles for that stuff. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. But that book pointed the finger at buyers. Buyers, right. So that's right. And there's a, there's all, there's been this whole industry that's crocked up around this whole case. So there's books by buyers. There's the book by Hobbs. There's Leverett. There's another guy you've interviewed George Jared. You've interviewed him, so it's Gary really, Deese. yeah. So it's just there's just tons of uh, information. There's more stuff coming out. You've interviewed Raw uh, Bob Ruff as well, who's done like sixty. He did like sixty hours on the case to try to find something, and then just I mean, it was just incredible. It just it just it's just a way, uh, just a gigantic mountain of nothingness. It just doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, I to the storage locker for a minute too. Okay. I remember the, the the Mr. Horn. It was yeah, Robert Horn. Yeah, yeah, Robert Horn told us that they, there was a Bible in there, but the only thing that was underlined in the Bible was, was stuff about the Satan or the devil or demons. It was only the bad stuff was underlined in the Bible. Uh, just fascinating. Uh, so let's see what else here. now. I guess uh, Terry Hobbs is pretty much a, he after this came up, he was interviewed by the police and he was cleared on this. Right. So they actually, according to Hobbs, he actually gave a whole nother set of DNA samples and everything in 2007 and they still didn't find anything. So um, there's really nothing that points Terry Hobbs to this case. There's no real evidence other than this supposed hair, which people keep saying that it's Terry's. It's never been proven to be Terry's. Never been compared. Yeah, it's just that he's not excluded from, right. from in that yeah. from that category, from that right. subcategory. It's not the, the the mitochondrial DNA that, that directs you direct, uh, direct connection. They're like OJ, you know, it's ninety nine point nine. It's right. nothing like that whatsoever. There's hundreds well, of thousands of people in that area who also would match to that hair. Correct. And here's the other thing: is they had a chance to actually put their evidence or what their findings were in a court of law, and they never did that. So now how? These guys got out. How, how come they're out? If they were guilty, uh, William Ramsey, if these guys were guilty, as you say, well, how come they got out? Well, they're still guilty. They just got <laughs> out for time served. So they actually put pressure, in my opinion, put pressure on this new DA that was in Arkansas. And he, he had a choice. He could have retried this case and fought with them um, through the courts again or, or have them accept this offer plea. And that's what he did. So I think that they blinked. To be honest with you, that's my opinion, is that that DA should have held his ground and went back into court and looked at the new evidence and just held it out. But I do think that the firestorm of public uh, outrage against this supposed injustice has probably had an influence. And, and you see these in these other cases that are popping up. You see it in Adnan Syed. That, those guys didn't blink, which was good. Um, all the evidence points against him. You see that in the uh, making a murder case. You know, you see this these public 
prof- uh, uh, hysteria mobocracies, the, you know, trying to influence the court system. And uh, oftentimes these mobs have not actually taken a, a very sober look at all the facts and all the evidence that was in the court. And, and in this case, the, the mobs, as you described them, are often found online. Right. And, uh, they're sympathetic to the fact that, okay, hey, listen, I was a teenager. I wore a black shirt. I was an outcast. I was a, a, I wore heavy metal shirts. I liked Metallica. Uh, and, but I never killed anybody, and which is true. But in this case, we have a guy who was you know, sacrificing animals and uh, threatening to sacrifice children, stalking little girls. Uh, like you said, Exhibit 500, where his own parents were in fear of their life around this guy. Right. Where he had other people, he attacked other people in the mental institution, then licked their blood, you know, uh, and things like that. Right. <sighs> so he's not, he's not, you can't, I mean, you can put him in that larger pool of heavy metal people who wore Metallica shirts was probably every third boy at that time. But uh, he had some very unique characteristics that I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I think the convictions were really based mm-hmm. upon first person statements that people saw or heard. And there was enough there that um, they, they found him guilty. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I must have hit the fucking uh, pause button. Oh, when did you hit so, it? 21. I, okay. 29. Shit. Hey, I already recorded it all, so... Oh, that's right, you got everything right, okay. Oh, good, okay, thank God, okay. I want you to edit out my daughter talking to me, though. Yeah, that's okay, don't worry about that. So let's, um... Oh, good, thank God for that. Okay, so let's, um... uh, We're at 38 minutes right now. Yeah, okay. So hold on. We can edit this out, too. All right, so let's take a commercial break, and we'll be right back with more of William Ramsey. Uh, His book is called... uh, Abomination, Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders. And we'll be right back after these messages with more of William Ramsey. Yeah, I must have hit the button. I was, I was looking at it. I says, boy, time's going so slow. <laughs> this is <laughs> what's going on. Well, that's, be... I'm at the point now where I want my guests to record stuff, too. So I have them record as well because I've already, I've already bungled one. I did one that's with Jason Horsley. I, I just screwed up one the other day with the guy from uh, The Hole in the Head, you know? Uh, that thing where they, they drill a hole in your head to give you enlightenment? No, I never even heard of that. Who's that? Uh, he, uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's fascinating. He's a great guest, too. This guy's done everything. He's a real fascinating guy. Oh, that's uh, crazy. Oh, man, forget it. Okay, so then, okay, so if it's 39 minutes, yeah, it's 41. Yeah, so we've got pretty much got to wrap up. Uh, okay. What do you want to finish up with? I just say, you know, there's a lot of this stuff is, uh, is uh, you ought to go back and look at the court cases of all these cases where they're supposedly innocent, including the uh, Central Park Five, Adnan Syed, Amanda Knox, all these people. Go read the court cases and what the police and the judges and or the police and prosecutors have as far as facts, because they often contradict the convicted person's claims of innocence. So you actually have to discount these cases, including the West Memphis Three. You have to say that all of what they've compiled from a variety of different sources and all of the testimonies and all of the first-person accounts, non-hearsay first-person accounts, are deceptive. Which, yeah, yeah, I mean, you have to say that those are fake, which is a stretch beyond a stretch. Okay, welcome back. Uh, um, this is uh, Ed Opperman with the Opperman Report. Um, our guest today is William Ramsey, uh, Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis Three case. Uh, William, we're out of time, but what do you want to leave us with? 
Well, I'd just say the very important thing to look at at the West Memphis 3 case are the case documents that are available on Callahan and look through all of the information and all the facts that the police compiled to make these guys get pro to get prosecuted. So I think that that's very important. And um, all of those case files are also in my book, Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception. It's based upon the case files. Uh, you know, I did a whole section on Chapter 500, so... Uh, these, these state, these, all these facts that are in there counter the claims of these people who are guilty that they're innocent. So it's very important because the innocence of the West Memphis Three is a hoax, and it's a hoax played out upon a large group of people who got involved in this innocence hysteria. And so it's uh, very dangerous too because they're actually still guilty and they're still walking free. So, and right, and uh. William and I have done hours and hours and hours of interviews on this topic. It, it, it's covering so many different areas. Almost every one of these areas we've uh, uh, breezed through tonight, we've done a whole show about. And you can find them on Spreaker.com. If you just Google William Ramsey, Ed Opperman, uh, they'll come right up. Uh, William Ramsey, thank you so much. People keep an eye out, too, for William Ramsey Investigates, his podcast. Excellent content over there. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Ed. Great to be with you.